Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. This week, we're taking a look at two upcoming IPOs in the legal tech space, LegalZoom and Intap. Joining me to break it all down is Molly Fool analyst Asit Sharma. Asit, thanks for joining me. Nick, thank you for having me. Always love to join you and talk shop on this podcast. Yeah, it's great to have you here, Asit. You're always one of my go-to folks when it's when it's S1 time. You're a big fan of, of looking at new IPOs. When you see an S1 what do you what do you you look for? What are the first things you go to uh, when you get that uh, that document? Yeah, so Nick, one of the very first things that I look at besides the business description, I should say maybe that's the first thing I look at. There's a section required by the SEC called the business, and in this section, management gets its one chance to give investors that first impression of their company. I look to see how well they're doing with that job and and if it's easy to understand. I should say that is the very first thing I do. But right after that, I'm always curious, why has a company come to market? Why not stay private if it's growing so well? And, And these investor presentations, they're always touting how well a company is growing. Why would you even bother? There are good reasons to come to market. Maybe you want to create a new market for your shares to do follow-up offerings, secondary offerings in the coming years. You want to introduce your company to a bigger set of investors versus private investors. There's so many reasons. Um, And you may want to actually raise capital, get money from the public to put it into new ventures that could be working capital needs. It could be maybe acquiring other companies. And I look for yellow flags here. Maybe a company is coming public to sort of bail some of the borrowings that it's undertaken. So this is another section of the S1 called use of proceeds that I always look at. Other than that, you know the, the, the things that any common sense investor would want to take a look at, who's running the show, how long have they been with the company, what's their ownership stake in that company, um, what is the technological advantage, if there is one, that the company is bringing to market. So many S1s that we are seeing over the past few years have a technology component. You it's rare that you see a company these days, Nick, that doesn't bring that to the table. Yeah, I think the idea of you know technology companies and everything else, that dichotomy is very much dropping away. If you're a company that doesn't have tech integrated in your, your system, you know, you're probably losing ground um, to the competition. Um, but but you know maybe that, maybe that tease tees things up when we talk about technology moving into uh, uh, some of these spaces uh, that. LegalZoom is a company that's that's been part of that. So so they just last week filed their S1 paperwork to go public on the Nasdaq with the proposed ticker LZ. Still some blanks on that S1 to be filled in, but uh, uh, but, but we do have some some basics about the company. They describe themselves as a leading online platform for legal and compliance solutions in the United States. I think if you've listened to a podcast in the past five years, you've probably heard um, of LegalZoom. Asset, looking at uh, at this filing off the top, what jumped out to you? So, first of all, I was not surprised that the company was founded in 2000. Um, investors included Robert Shapiro. They've been around for a while. So, Robert Shapiro is, is a pretty well-known attorney. Uh, this mission that the company talks about in its mission statement, they want to democratize law. That makes a lot of sense, too. If you have listened to one of these commercials, what this company offers is essentially a do-it-yourself type of legal document, which state-by-state 
passes enough muster that they don't cross the line in giving legal advice uh, to uh, provoke the ire, I think, of um, governing legal associations, bar associations. And they do it pretty well. They um, have really evolved into a subscription platform. So they are a software as a service company. That was the first thing that jumped out at me is, okay, even though I understand what this company does, you can go online and uh, create a will for yourself without the help of an attorney in, in many states. What I really get out of this is this is not a lot different than SaaS software as a service business models that we look at, gee, every week that, that are coming out. So I want to read from something that you clipped in our notes to this, Nick. Our platform helps new businesses form. Once a small business is formed, we offer subscription services to protect the business, its ideas, and the families that create them. So right here, what you're seeing in this nugget is the origination of each sector of its eventual markets. Protect the business, we all get that. Its ideas, that's intellectual property, the families that create them. So there's another vertical uh, set of services that are aimed at the people who are creating that business. If you take this concept, you can see how the company has a very tremendous market, which we'll talk about. Now, how much of this market is really truly accessible? Um, I, I'm going to lean on on your advice. But Nick, as someone with a legal background, what do you think about the, the way this company is structured and the way it offers its services? Um, well, you know, so one of the things that, that really jumped out to me is just how meaningful their their brand is and how, how strong a brand they have in the space. So some of the figures that they cite in the S1, 10% of new LLC filings in the US in 2020, handled by LegalZoom, 5% um, of new corporate formations, um, super meaningful. Um, Two-thirds of the small businesses that have formed through LegalZoom in 2020 had not begun operations when they did uh, did business with them. Also, 60% um, of customers who form a business with, with LegalZoom also attach um, some of these other um, subscription Models, whether it's for um, whether it's for trademark issues or or estate plans or taxes or, or anything like that. So so their their approach makes sense to me in, in the sense that all right, when you're starting a business, you want to protect liability, set up your LLC, kind of wall off your business from um, your business assets from your personal assets because businesses are, are risky things. So attaching with with with, um, with customers at that point makes some sense and also offers an opportunity to attach some of these other revenue models. On whether that's um, trademark filings or the like. One thing that I, I do think is challenging for LegalZoom, or, or makes the, the environment some, something uh, complicated to navigate, is, is you mentioned earlier um, the practice of law across the the U.S. is regulated state by state by bar associations, and, and one of the uh, there, there's a couple limitations there. So one is if you don't, if you're not licensed, if you're not a licensed attorney, you can't practice law, right? So, so, that, so what that really means is you can provide forms, you can provide basic educational um, information around, you know, these are the considerations you you should think about when forming your business or or taking on trademark protection or what have you. But you can't offer offer personalized advice, just like how we can't offer personalized financial advice. Can't offer offer personalized legal advice. Say, hey, for your particular uh, uh, business, this is what you need to do for your trademark. So it really limits um, the, the services that LegalZoom is able to offer and exposes them um, to some risk. So you know, throughout its history, there have been there have been various times where where folks um, from bar associations have, have gone after LegalZoom, accusing them from unauthorized practice of law, offering too much um, custom advice. And they say in their in their filings that quote, we anticipate that we will continue to be a target for such lawsuits in the future. So there's this kind of uh, 
I don't know, a tension here where I think on the, on the customer side, there's, there's a lot of attraction to a flat fee model for forming your business, a lot of attraction to something that I can access simply um, through the internet. But on the side of the legal field, there's, there's a lot of uh, resistance to, to legal, LegalZoom building out its offerings. They, they've, they have built out a network of independent attorneys across the, across the country and, and tax advisors they can refer folks out to. But again, you're in this, you're in this uh, kind of a gray area when it, comes to, uh, when it comes to what you're allowed to do, uh, practicing law. And because of those regulations actually illustrates why there's so little online services. So from the S one, it says, uh, according to an ABA, so American Bar Association survey, um, it's 8% of legal services in the United States conducted online in 2020. This is when everything's locked down, right? Um, compared to 70% in the financial services industry, 30 to 45% in healthcare services. Another survey from the American Bar Association, 40% of solo attorneys don't even have a website. So um, there's just not a lot of, uh, uh, of tech in the legal industry, part, 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 excuse me, partially because of the restrictions and, and um, folks uh, practicing law. One other thing to, to mention um, is the ethical restrictions prohibit um, non-attorneys from owning stakes in law firms. So, uh, so that, that's another complication. The fact that uh, the fact that LegalZoom is coming public and is going to be owned by, by public shareholders by definition runs it afoul of, of the idea that um, you know non-lawyers uh, can't own law firms. So, you know, all, all that to say, I think the brand that, that LegalZoom has is incredibly strong uh, in this space. And, and I think to the extent regulations relax in the future, which I think they're likely to, given the pressure from customers, LegalZoom's in a really strong position to take advantage of, of the move um, of legal services to more online. The example that comes to mind for me is if you remember DraftKings a few years ago when they were kind of, they were on a little bit of a legal edge when it comes to DFS. Actually, their merger with FanDuel kind of got scuttled because of because of some uh, some legal issues. But then whenever the Supreme Court removed restrictions on sports betting, they had such a powerful brand um, and the market opened up so much that they really thrived in a really significant way. I, I think when I, when I look at LegalZoom, that's that's where I really see lots of potential is to the extent that, that restrictions are, are lifted on, on practice of law and they can really go go after more of the providing direct legal services to folks. That's where things get really interesting and this company becomes a rule breaker. Um, for right now, I think they're, they're super strong brand in the space, uh, you know, offering what, what they're doing. But I, it's, it's hard for me to, to see where they're going to launch out to, to hyper growth. Yeah. And I can see this company being uh, a strong, strong grower for years to come, maybe not hyper growth. One of the things that's interesting is this, that this economy over the last, I would say, 40 to 50 years has turned from you know manufacturing-based economy to a consumption-based economy. And then in the last five years, of course, we've become more of, I think, a technology-based consumption economy. And over the last year, we have seen an acceleration in the potential for uh, the gig economy portion of total gross domestic product. So, all of the people who were uh, uprooted during the pandemic in terms of losing jobs or maybe searching out different careers, and the people who maintained their jobs remotely but now don't want to go back to a physical environment and are thinking of maybe expanding a side hustle they picked up during the pandemic. These are all trends that are accelerating uh, the entrepreneurial aspect uh, of our current economy, the state of our current economy. And what this means for LegalZoom is that if they never get that opening up of regulation, they still have a market that's going to grow at a 
decent rate, compound annual growth rate for the foreseeable future. And we should talk here about about the market opportunity that management sees, although I'd love Nick's opinion uh, picking this apart a little bit. They say that their total adjustable market, uh, and this is serviceable, serviceable adjustable market, or SAM, you're used to hearing total adjustable market, or TAM, for non-service businesses. It's basically the same thing. It's about $48 billion bucks. Out of that, they see that $18.3 billion exists in services that small businesses use at the time of business formation. And this is important uh, when I look at this company because I do see a trend of people deciding they don't want to work uh, in the office anymore. We've already seen corporations, especially middle market corporations and large corporations, Nick, become more and more comfortable with having fewer employees and more contractors. Well, if you are a contractor of a big company, let me take IBM just off the top of my head, versus being an employee, you're running your own business. And at some point in time, if you're making enough or if you uh, add on another company, let's say your work with IBM decreases, then you are really in a, a position of a different, uh, what's called a different tax uh, situation versus being an, an employee. And what that means is that you need to think through perhaps incorporating as a single member LLC, maybe remaining as a sole proprietor and having a Schedule C on your uh, tax return. But what does, it, what does this also imply? It implies that you're going to become more knowledgeable and start thinking about what you do with those returns each year and how that affects your legal implication, how it affects any trust implications once you start thinking as a business owner, and then thinking about preserving your assets. I see this trend going on for a long, long time. Now, to continue on this market opportunity, uh, they also see $21.5 billion in services that small businesses use later in their lifetime. So, as you grow, you begin to need additional legal services, just as you need additional tax services. And I should say, Nick, this reminds me of a company that is really, really good at providing a similar level of service in the small business world, not the legal portion of it, but uh, bookkeeping, payroll taxes, etc. And that's Intuit, the owner of TurboTax um, and a lot of personal finance, smaller companies under their umbrella. They're very good at pulling people in, let's say you are a sole proprietor or you've incorporated as a business, they help you do your your tax return. If you have a more complex need, they have a network of CPAs and um, other other types of uh, accountants and bookkeepers that can help you so that they don't lose you as a customer. And that's what LegalZoom also has a talent for. They, they have, as you mentioned, Nick, a network of attorneys. So, when you cross that line between just filling out a legal form and needing true legal advice, they can provide that and keep you within that umbrella. Lastly, um, they see $8.8 billion in consumer estate planning services. And this is what I was referring to earlier. As you build wealth as an entrepreneur, you start thinking ahead. How am I going to pass this money on uh, to my heirs? When, when you start seeing the end of that um, cycle of opportunity and maybe you, you decide to retire and move on. This is a natural evolution from a person who sees themselves as a small business owner or an entrepreneur. They follow you through the whole growth cycle and they have a service point at each part of that cycle. So yeah, they may not ever reach hyper growth if the regulations don't change, but I could see them being a steady uh, company that's 
let's say, has double-digit revenue growth over the next several years and uh, could be a persuasive buy if you like these software-as-a-service business models, which I'm a fan of that capital light type of business model. Yeah, yeah. You know, I will say I'm a little skeptical on the size of that uh, of that serviceable addressable market, particularly on the consumer estate planning services, just because I think most of the value of that estate planning is going to be biased towards the folks with, with very complex estates that need meaningful legal services. And by definition, LegalZoom is not going to be satisfying those types of, of super complex um, estates on account of um, they're co- they're complicated enough that you need to get a lawyer. Uh, need to get a lawyer a lot uh, looped in there, and there's a lot more kind of complex things going on. I, so I, I think they're probably being a little bit generous on, on the serviceable, addressable market. It's it's going to be folks who are kind of very very basic needs. You know, once you get past a a very low level of complexity, I think you're going to want to move to a to a more high touch um, high high touch kind of legal. Uh, advice. If you talk to our in-house, I talked to some of our in-house um, attorneys here at the Motley Fool, and they basically said the same thing: is that you know, um, I, you know, if I got past a minimum level of complexity, I, I would probably be looking out uh, um, for a um, for full, you know, full service attorney. Which is why I think, to the extent we can remove that barrier to offering uh, uh, full services, when things get really, really interesting. But when we look at, at the business, the day asset, we look at the financials, why they're raising the money, as you mentioned off the top of the show, um, what jumped out to you in the, the financial numbers reported by uh, uh, LegalZoom? Yeah, there's one thing that is uh, so big that you ha- almost have to focus on it first. And, and that is that the company um, has a lot of long-term debt for the size of their balance sheet. So if, if you look at the total assets on the books, that's about 200 million bucks. Um, they have total liabilities of almost 700 million. The difference is in 515 million dollars of long-term debt. And uh, this is one of the things that I've learned over time, Nick, not to be too scared off from if a company has a plan to uh, reduce the debt through their uh, public offering. Once in a while, you see companies that are, are controlled by venture capitalists and private equity firms that are basically just shoving off a bad business model onto shareholders. And those investors are getting out. You're saddled with the debt as as an owner of the business if you buy into the IPO or post-IPO. This doesn't seem to be quite that case. Uh, what it looks like to me is that LegalZoom um, has some very strict covenants on its debt. It's high-interest debt, um, and they're sort of saddled by this. They have to allocate a certain port portion of their cash flow to to stay within leverage ratios that are stipulated by their debt covenants. So if they can raise some capital to um, refinance a little bit of that, this should help appreciably uh, with their bottom line. And in fact, it's the debt service or the interest component of that debt service which is keeping this company really from being profitable because on an operating basis, uh, you know, they're they're pretty decent. In 2019, the company had Revenue of about four hundred eight million dollars, and they had operating income of forty six million. And in twenty twenty, the company generated four hundred seventy million dollars in revenue, and had about forty nine million dollars in operating income. But in both years, you had interest expense in twenty nineteen of about thirty nine million, and you had interest expense of thirty six million odd in twenty twenty, which really reduced uh, the the net income. After you figure in tax effects and other income, they had uh, a net income of just $7 million in 2019 and about $10 million in 2020. Now, what we have in exchange for that is a company that is growing um, at a fairly decent growth rate. And uh, they are 
getting to the point where they're really starting to generate scale on their operating cash flows. Operating cash flows for all of 2020 were $93 million. That's a really nice jump from $53 million in the prior year. If they can raise uh, enough capital to pay down uh, what is really a term loan from 2018, that's the specific piece of debt that bothers me, they, they could uh, start to reinvest in the company a little bit um, more significantly than they have. I think this has maybe been a limited, limiting factor on your growth. When you've got a large piece of debt service, Nick, that can hold you back because you just don't have the cash to plow into areas where the growth is. But that's what leapt out at me um, on these uh, financials. What caught your eye when you were sort of skimming through these? Yeah, I think think those those are some main things. Also, uh, you know, the executive comp is pretty high. So the CEO, CTO, and CFO each got each received in excess of four million dollars in compensation um, the last year, which is a lot. There were there were a handful of uh, material weaknesses in accounting about you know not maintaining um, effective controls. That's always something you want to kind of control F for um, in these documents to see what's going on. Sometimes you'll see these pop up in companies going from private um, to public, but always something to watch. I think so. Um, and to your point, Asit, of, of to the extent that um, that um, interest interest expense is detracting from marketing that they can they they can put forward. This really seems to me to be kind of. Uh, you know, a lifetime value to customer acquisition business, right? You want to acquire customers for as low as you can and then keep them around and attach these other services. And so the main driver for a business like this, and as we mentioned off the top, you probably heard about them on a podcast, is things like advertising. So, you know, to the extent interest expense is taking away from the ability to push more on advertising to, to grow the business, that's not good. Um, so so for me, what, what I'm really looking for is, yeah, how can they get that, um, that debt situation under control? Um, do they get the, the the material weaknesses corrected? And then also, there's a significant private equity ownership here with this company. That that'll be an overhang um, when the company comes public. So all that to say, this is I mean for almost any IPO that I look at, I want to watch it for a few quarters. But I think in particular here um, for LegalZoom, I, I would want to. Uh, Kind of sit back and watch, see how they handle becoming a public company, see how they get the, the balance sheet issues under control, see what happens when it comes to some of these potential um, uh, regulatory slash legal issues that are going to pop up from time to time for the company. I think to the extent those things happen and the and the shares uh, re-rate, that might be an interesting buying opportunity for me. Um, but I think this is one where I really like the brand. I think there is a strong trend towards folks wanting to do more of their kind of legal work themselves, particularly on the low end and, and the attractiveness of a flat fee. But uh, you know, execution is is no easy task, I think, in this space. I agree. And I think um, we should mention this before we move on to our next ticker. I, th- I think we both forgot to just give the numbers here. The revenue growth rate is solid double digits. So uh, in the, the last year, revenue increased about 15% over 2019. And in the first quarter, or actually, this is the most recent quarter report, I'm not sure if this is the fiscal for first quarter, they had revenue growth of 27% year over year. Now, we need to understand that LegalZoom, like a lot of other companies, got a COVID boost. There were a lot of businesses that were formed as people were stuck at home. So, you're going to see that growth rate normalize. But yeah, here what we've got is a company that maybe is growing normalized in the mid-teens. And it has a lot to like. But as Nick mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, 
we're at the fill in the blank stage on the S1 statement. So we're going to see exactly what the ownership percentages are for management. We're going to see how much these private investors own of the company. Uh, lots of other details to come. Even not having seen those, Nick, I am sort of landing where you are that this isn't one that I am itching to buy right after it goes public, but I'll certainly keep it on the watch list. It's a good market. And if we see some regulatory movement that allows them to play a little bit more of a hands-on role with what they offer to their customer base, sure, it could be, as you say, a company that moves from a solid mid-teens growth to sort of hyper-growth, and that would make it a lot more interesting. Yeah. Last thought. You know, I always like using David Gardner's Rule Breaker Framework as a big part of kind of the Motley Fool approach. I think pretty healthily checks off the top dog and first mover, number one. And I think it, you know, you could argue has a strong spot and strong strong consumer appeal. Number five, I think I do have some questions about how sustainable is the advantage as more, more and more tech moves into the space. And, you know, the management uh, comp, you know, I, I want to see them show me a little bit uh, when it comes to that. But um, so, so moving on, from LegalZoom, which is kind of one sector of this legal tech market. Let's move on to Intap, which also dropped its uh, S1 filing last week, proposing to go public on the NASDAQ with ticker INTA. This company has also been in business for 20 years, similar to uh, similar to LegalZoom, but playing in a different space than LegalZoom. Yeah, so their mission is to, and I'm quoting, enable professional and financial services firms to better connect their people, processes, and data through AI-powered software solutions. So think about uh, big law firms, big accounting firms, big consulting firms. How do you manage uh, relationships with your customers? How do you protect very confidential information? Um, things like this are enhanced by artificial intelligence. How do you work with document interchange between yourself and your clients? And we'll talk about how this works in a legal setting and also in maybe professional services and consulting as we go along. Think about the machine, machinery required for a big firm to operate well and operate efficiently. This is sort of what Intap does also on a subscription basis. But Nick, you point out something very interesting in their About Me page where they were trying to explain their business. I found this very amusing. Yeah, uh, so, can you can you read this? Yeah, I went to their About Me page on their website to see, hey, what does this company do? And uh, yeah, I'll read this and you, you tell me what you think it, what you think they do. It says, Intap provides best of breed connected firm management solutions to the professional and financial services industry, powering the world's largest private capital, investment banking, legal, accounting, and consulting firms. Intap technology has transformed these industries with intelligent cloud-based solutions purpose-built for the complexities of partner-led firms, operationalizing the entire relationship lifecycle from strategy through origination and execution. Can you translate that to like English for me, Asit? <laughs> you know, unfortunately, I can't, Nick. And that's why I found this so funny. I mean, yeah, to be frank, to be frank, maybe I could a little bit. <laughs> Here's my here's my attempt at a translation, but but we should say this is not the way to present your company on the web. This is gobbledygook, is so full of corporate jargon that even people who analyze companies for a living and have to read through this stuff day after day, yourself and myself, we don't get this. But yeah, I'm gonna try. So we um, we provide the best software that connects firms to each other within these different industries, and our technology, which is they're in the cloud, driven by artificial intelligence and machine learning, which it has been designed specifically for 
the parts of these relationships, which are very complex, to make it easier for companies to transact with their customers. We do this from the very beginning when you are trying to um, scout and make deals to the end of your relationships with these customers, whether you are a private equity firm, an investment bank, a venture capital firm, a law firm, an accounting firm, or a consulting firm. That's what we try to do. And see, even my condensed like explanation isn't much better because this is just so fake. Yeah. yeah so, so, so the basics of it is, in, in these industries, when you, when you bring on a client, it's a whole, whole list of processes you have to go through. So number one is you got to make sure that you don't have another client that you work for that's, a, that's an adverse party because they're going to disclose confidential information to you. And so you have to make sure that you don't have any conflicts of interest in place. That can be incredibly complicated, especially when you talk about some of these firms that have hundreds and hundreds of lawyers. So lots, lots of firms with 500 plus attorneys. You have 500 plus relationships all over the world that you have to navigate. Also, you have to build these clients, right? You have And, and, and various clients can have very particular um, billing uh, requirements and, and services and things like that. The other thing is you can, you can look at, okay, um, we've done business with these people in the past. How long do these projects tend to take? How much how much staffing should we allocate to this project? Um, what should uh, what should we charge What should we charge these clients? That sort of thing. Uh, Intap software helps helps solve that for you. Another thing that they they talk about is they have a low code personalized user interface um, that's kind of helps work for every particular law firm. Um, that jumps out to me because when you think about every law firm is kind of its own uh, unique business or every particular type of a private equity firm is unique in its own special way. The environment that I think is maybe parallels to me or that came to mind as a comparison is, is um, there are some, some companies um, that operate in kind of government software. And you have these, these same types of things. Every government is unique in its own special way. Governments tend to be managed uh, by people who aren't necessarily, who are elected versus people that are, are maybe experts in some of the industries they operate in. If you look at these uh, partnership-based businesses like law firms you'll have a managing partner who is an attorney who is running the business operations of the company and trying to stand up uh, um, some of those operations so so kind of uh, of complicated um, and so uh, it's one of these things where you need a, a service that can scale across the board there are some similarities for all these uh, applications however every uh, particular entity um, is unique and just give some context on, um, on on their client base and who they offer services to this they have 1600 plus clients 96 of the am law 100 uh, law firms are, are their customers seven of the top eight global accounting firms 900 plus private capital and investment banks you know I, the way I think about it basically is if your company is like dude and some other dude, you probably have a relationship um, with Intap um, on the software side. If you bill by the hour and have to do a conflicts check for your business, you're probably um, someone who might get some benefit um, from Intap. What do you make of, of the customer base and the opportunity here uh, for the company, Asset? I think it's a really good customer base and a large opportunity. I especially like that they are uh, focused on deal flow. So the products you were describing before, they've got two main products. One of those is called Deal Cloud, and that uh, rests in the financial services industry. Deal transactions are extremely complex among larger companies. So you have a whole phase. One great example everyone's familiar with is mergers and acquisitions, right? One company acquiring another. You have a whole phase of due diligence that you have to go through. You have to understand the company that you're buying and, and sort of make sure that uh, what you're looking at at uh, checks out, so you you'll have in a typical deal a lot of the the investment in 
understanding the information one party is presenting to another. And the software is sort of geared towards this. Again, they have that AI component, which is going to root out inconsistencies, places that an investment banker should should look or an acquire, let's say it's a principal of a private equity firm. And the fact, Nick, that they've got all of these in different industries, the top firms, speaks well to their market. Number one, it says that they probably have already addressed uh, most of their market, and now it's a question of expanding where they've landed. Uh, but two, I think that this is really good for the layer just below the largest companies in the space, because what this is, is sort of like legal zoom it levels the playing field for the budding entrepreneur who doesn't have 2 or 300 bucks an hour to pay a local attorney to to make all of his or her documents in the same way intap provides to the middle market company that is a smaller company whose revenues could be anywhere from a few million dollars up into the tens of millions it allows them to have the same kind of infrastructure that the top firms have built in-house. The the top firms, like you mentioned, the 96 of the AMLA 100 legal first, these companies were developing technology in-house, then they became subscribers to, to Intap. But Intap is available to much smaller firms that just don't have the money to build a, uh, if you are, let's say, a, a private equity firm, to build a due diligence uh, document flow that is enhanced by machine learning to help you keep that edge, I really like that aspect of it. Yeah, and likewise, kind of, kind of as I mentioned earlier, it's not your core competency. If you, if you are, you know, if you are an investment banker and you became a partner in an investment banking firm, you know, your core competency is not writing software for for conflicts checks. Likewise, for for the managing partner of any of these these big law firms. So, so just like the kind of example I laid out for for government software, this is one of these things where it makes sense um, to outsource to, to some other uh, uh, provider. The other thing to think about is. You know, uh, clients are getting more and more uh, demanding of lawyers when it comes to what they offer from the tech side. You talk to you talk to any lawyer, um, and they'll tell you, "Yeah, used to, we used to send out you know a letter, and it would be a week before it before I'd get it from the client. Then I'd have a week to respond, and then they'd have a week to respond back to me." Now we're in an environment where it's an always on, all, always working, and there's pre- increasing pressure um, on law firms to be more and more efficient, squeeze down costs wherever they can, um, and to the extent uh, Intap can help with that, uh, it's all to the good. Uh, uh, for these firms, makes things easier for them and lets them squeeze out some efficiencies from the business. So let's let's move on to the market and uh, and the financials for Intap. So Intap says their serviceable addressable market much smaller uh, than than that laid out by uh, by LegalZoom. Uh, it is, and maybe Nick, it's a more realistic market though. So um, they say that their total addressable market is nine point six billion dollars, and they attribute about six point five billion of that to those large firms with over 500 employees. Now, Nick, you had some thoughts uh, on this. You've got a legal background. Is this realistic uh, or are they also inflating even this? As, as uh, you point out, LegalZoom might be stretching to say that they've got that $8 billion opportunity just in estates and trusts. So, yeah, Asit, what, what do you make of, you know, as, uh, as Intap establishes these relationship Relationships with customers or, or with individual practice groups, and then is able to cross-sell um, to, to other parts of the business. What do you make of the potential uh, uh, there for Intap to, to grow its to grow its market and deepen its relationship with customers moving forward? I actually like this opportunity, and I would suggest that uh, those of you who might be scared off by the idea that their market 
uh, total mar- addressable market is maybe around $6 billion. Take another look. There is something funny that happens uh, in valuation of small companies that are growing uh, at a, a double-digit type of growth rate. At some point, the market starts to focus on how much annualized recurring revenue you have and what those numbers could look like. How stable it is is another big thing that plays into public company valuations. Nick, you had pointed out in our notes that those 100 largest clients um, represent opportunities in excess of a billion dollars in annualized recurring revenue per year. So even if they just tap what they have with these 100 largest clients, that is something that will be very beneficial for the future cash flows of the company. And it is certainly something that will help uh, the valuation of the stock as it uh, trades public, of course, in the near future, looking ahead several years uh, into the future. I think that this is something to pay attention to. I've seen this repeat over and over again. I can name some big companies like Salesforce.com or ServiceNow, whose growth rates slow a bit. Autodesk is another example of, of this phenomenon. Even so, as that annualized recurring revenue pile gets bigger and bigger, investors like nothing better than to sleep on those cash flows. So the stock has a chance to expand on that. So this relatively smaller market opportunity doesn't bother me as much simply because they're into so many market clients among these really well-heeled industries. If you think about financial services, um, also the legal profession, the accounting profession, it's sort of a sweet spot to be in. And we just don't see many companies that play in the space that we have a chance to invest in. Right. So, so you mentioned that that opportunity they call it in the S1 that, listen, if just our top 100 clients took our, took our service, took it across the board and put it for all their, all their employees, we, have a, uh, we would have $1 billion in annual recurring revenue. Well, let's compare that to what they've got in annual recurring revenue right now. I said, what, what, uh, so we had $201 million in trailing 12-month revenue, re- 12-month revenue from March 31st. 89% of that is recurring. So, you know, you're looking at the 150, 170 million dollar range of recurring revenue. They see, you know, a look through opportunity to get up to a billion if customers continue um, adoption. Seems pretty good, right? It does. Now, if if only um, the rest of the picture uh, would catch up, which I think it will. But yeah, to me, this uh, is a really nice part of their their total revenue, and I love the fact that that piece is growing at uh, 32% year over year. Now, the rest of the story is that they're running at a loss. Um, we'll take the, the nine months ended March 31st from the S1 that they, they filed. Total revenues of $154 million for those um, nine months, but they had a net loss of about $31 million um, off of that. And that is because for now, even though the company has a pretty decent gross margin, they are pouring a lot into sales and marketing. And the cost of the services is undercut a little bit by the need to provide support revenue um, for their professional services. And that runs at a loss. If you think about it, this is like um, a customer service investment, which will help as they teach people in these larger companies about the software and its capabilities. They take a, we, we call this a consulting loss in the software as a service business. And that's one of the things that's dra- dragging down the bottom line. Gross margins could probably be fatter, but they're taking an investment now in order to pr- provide more opportunities to expand within these clients in the future. So what they need now, I think, Nick, is 
some ability to scale and get some operating leverage out of this picture. Yeah, absolutely. Attaching these other services, building, you know, they, they've invested to build uh, the relationship. Another thing is the cost of recurring revenue grew faster than the recurring revenue itself during 2020. Hopefully that these are these are investments to, to kind of deepen customer relationships and put, position the company to it to make those uh, those attachments of, of adjacent revenue streams and build up to that a billion a billion dollar number uh, they're telling us about um, in. The S1 negative operating cash flow, so we're still waiting to see um, that this turn around. But with this land and expand model, we see this a lot with SaaS companies. It, it doesn't mean um, you know that, that things aren't going to work out in the future, but but it does mean that there is more execution ahead uh, to get there. It is reassuring to me that uh, you know uh, that two of the founders are still at the company as the SVP of technology and chief product officer. These officer, these are the folks leading uh, product investments. Um, but like um, like we mentioned with LegalZoom, there's also a big private equity uh, ownership here as well that we don't have uh, you know all the all the answers on what's going to happen with them and, and what their uh, what their positioning is. That's true, and I know for a lot of people that can be a deal maker when you see uh, private equity ownership stick around after a company goes public. So right now there are two big private equity companies, Anderson Investment and Great Hill Partners, uh, that are big funders of the company. They'll be around for a while. Of course, there'll be a little bit of a lockup period after the IPO, and you'll be able to track uh, if, if they decide to sell some more shares after that. But I think with two co-founders, this is a company that's been around for 20 years, as you mentioned, Nick, uh, that are still very much involved, especially on the product side, uh, Thad Jampol as, as chief product officer, that bodes well for the company's product development and, and also this whole advantage that we've been talking about, the competitive advantage that they're in these big companies. Now the job is to expand. So I think all in all, they've got some opportunity that hopefully their public offering will be able uh, to leverage. So they'll take some capital in on their balance sheet and invest in new products and whatever parts now of the lower markets that they don't already have a good uh, visible ramp into at the middle market, which I keep talking about, they'll, they'll aim some of their um, sales artillery in that direction as well. Yeah. So uh, any last thoughts on, on NTAP before we kind of give our, our final uh, rulings here on, on NTAP and LegalZoom? Let's, let's give our final rulings. All right. Awesome. Well, as between these two, which, which do you like better and why? My word, they're both really interesting, Nick. Uh, LegalZoom is so consumer facing and I am so enchanted by this movement towards a gig economy and an entrepreneurial economy that I think this is, is a persuasive type of investment to watch. We gave all the reasons why we're not excited to go out and buy right now, but I could see following this company literally for three to five years on a, on a watch list and at the appropriate time as maybe some regulations fall in at least some high population states taking a position. If I had to invest today, though, I think it would be Intap simply because Intap resembles much more closely the type of software as a service market uh, and, and business model that I'm used to looking at and I've seen be successful. Now, they are uh, negative in terms of uh, net income, in terms of operating cash flow. They are on a path to scale that. It's a much simpler model in some ways. And I think that there's not much competition that they have to worry about in that so few companies target the, the inner complexities of deal making, of information slow, of, of flow of, of client management. 
So I think Intop would be the one that I would have to lean on and force to make a decision today. I would say, though, for me, both of these are, are simply watch list stocks. I, I'm going to keep them um, somewhere close to monitor their progress every quarter as the reports come out, maybe read some transcripts from management calls. But neither one is a screaming buy just now, as far as um, I see. And how about you? Yeah, I, I would say I'm in. I'm in the same boat. I, I you know, I, I think um, I, I really uh, am very interested in the Legal Zoom story because I think there is a strong uh, drive from customers to want to do more and more of this themselves and have more and more kind of flat, um, flat rate uh, legal relationships. I also think that you know they have the strongest brand in the space, and so so to the extent that this future materializes, I think LegalZoom has uh, um, probably the best opportunity to capture it. That said, there, there's a lot of clouds between here and there, um, you know, when it, when it comes to the, you know, the, the having to fight with law firms. Um, and so I, I think what I, I view LegalZoom as more of a kind of venture capital type investment, where I think the upside, potential upside is very strong. But, uh, you know, if things don't go their way on, on the regulatory side, you might not be very happy. I think when I look at, at Intap, the nature of this market is such that the, these customers are going to be very, very sticky and in a position where, where it's, it's a, a great spot to, to cross sell some of these services. So I think if you wanted to invest and, and be in a scenario where, where you want to protect your capital at all costs, Intap, it, it's hard for me to tell a story where where these customers get less sticky over time and other folks kind of take these relationships away. As I said earlier, when this is the software that's responsible for you collecting fees, and when collecting fees is your whole business, it's really hard uh, to switch away from Intap. So I, I see them as being more of, of a steady grower, whereas as uh, the, the range of outcomes for LegalZoom is much wider. So depending on what type of investor you are, I think it could fit in either type of portfolio. That said, to your point, Asad, I think there is some execution I would like to see for at least several quarters, see how they, how they adapt to being a public company, see some more disclosures, which we'll get as we get more and more filings and all these blanks filled in on the S1. But I really like both of these stories. The stories are good, and that's why they're worth uh, following as we go forward over the next few quarters. And as I said, in LegalZoom's case, the next few years. Well, Asit, thanks so much for, for spending this time with me. I can't wait to have you on again sometime soon. It was great, Nick. Thanks so much. Right. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for mixing the show. For Asit Sharma, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on. 